scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Thank you for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your amazing love and your goodness. We thank you for your scriptures, your word that you have given to us, and the privilege we have to be able to read it, memorize it, study it, to hear the word of God being preached. It is truly a blessing, and we pray that we would not take that blessing for granted. And Father, we pray today, as we delve into your word, that you will remind us again about how amazing and good you are and how dependent and needy we are upon you. And we pray that you would bless us with your, with your word and that we would, again, respond with faith and respond with praise, with worship, thankful and grateful hearts to you. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we are, uh, we're still on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we've been spending a number of weeks, and I felt that if we're going to be on the Sermon on the Mount, we definitely should cover uh, the most famous prayer ever, right? A prayer that Jesus himself shared with his disciples, and obviously to us. And it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's been coined that, although some scholars will argue maybe we should call it the Disciples' Prayer, because not the prayer necessarily that Jesus used to pray, it's the prayer that he taught his disciples and obviously to us. And it is really, it's a model prayer. It's a prayer that I'm, I'm guessing most of us, if not all of us, have heard. Maybe if you grew up in the church, you recited it every week, especially in Sunday school. I know, I know at Dayspring, they still recite it. I believe though they, they sing it, right? It's a praise song that, that the children sing together. And it's an important prayer. It's a great prayer to memorize. It is a model prayer. It is a pattern of prayer. So one thing I do want to highlight here before we really get into the passage, Jesus didn't share this prayer with us so that every day we would just recite it and, you know, just without really thinking about it, just say those words. He, he shared it with us so that we would think about what the different components of the prayer are and really pray in that way, pray in that pattern that Jesus clearly showed us. And the prayer shows us the priorities that are important in the Christian life. And Jesus shares these things so we could think about how important these aspects of the prayer are, but also to think about how we should pray about these priorities. Uh, famous theologian Bonifer, he actually calls this prayer the perfect prayer. Um, he says the Lord's Prayer is not merely the pattern it is the way Christians must pray. And then he says, the Lord's Prayer is the quintessence of prayer, right? It's really strong language from him about how amazing, how good truly this prayer is that Jesus has taught his disciples, that he has taught us. And obviously, we should think about the Lord's Prayer when we pray. I mean, and, this, and this passage in Matthew 6, really, Jesus is talking about the importance of prayer. He talks about fasting, talks about how to pray, talks about why we pray, and all of these things. 
And so today, I want to just look at this passage and just really think a little bit about the importance of the Lord's Prayer and what it means for our lives and obviously for our prayer lives, but also for our lives, period. Uh, now, some pastors, I've noticed, will spend weeks of, on every aspect of the Lord's Prayer, and I, I didn't want to do that. But just in one message, I was hoping to at least capture the essence of the Lord's Prayer to think about how it impacts us in our lives, our prayer lives, but also just our lives, period. And so there's three points I want to make today. The first one is praying with confidence to our Heavenly Father, praying with confidence to our Heavenly Father. Second point was praying Godward prayers, right? Praying for God's honor, His will, His kingdom. And then lastly, praying for our needs, right? So praying confidently to our Heavenly Father, praying Godward, Godward prayers, but also lastly, praying for our needs. The three, three things I want to highlight today. And the first thing is, Praying with confidence to our Heavenly Father. Now, if you notice the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew 6, verse 9, he starts, Jesus starts by saying, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. He says, our Father. And that's, that's amazing, right? Because he's, he's saying, Abba, Father, right? And I think theologians will say, you know, the way he's using the word Father here, it's it's kind of like daddy, but maybe with a little more reverence. So kind of maybe, I think one commentator says, it's like he was saying, dearest father, right? There's a warmth to it, but also a certain reverence to it. And he says, our father. He's saying that we, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God today, he's saying you can start your prayer by calling God father. And that's a huge thing. Because in the Old Testament, you don't see that kind of personal language. And obviously, our God has authority over us, and he is our heavenly father, which we see, in, obviously, in the passage, which means he's to be revered, he's to be honored, but also, it's a reminder that he loves and he provides for his people as their perfect father, our father. Right? It's a we there, it's a, obviously, it's a community, but we are a family, and we have God as our father. And if you think about that, we can ask of a father things that we cannot ask anybody else. Right? We could be nagging, right? And again, when we say our father, think of a child. Right? Maybe not a grown adult necessarily, but think of a child to their father. Right? A child can go to daddy and say, daddy, I want this. Daddy, I want that. Daddy, I want you to hug me. Right? Daddy, I want you to get me water or get me milk. Right? Daddy, I want this toy. Daddy, I want you to buy me this. A child can wake up a parent. Right? You can wake up to daddy at 2 a.m. and say, I need water. Right? You can't do that really to anybody else. It would be annoying. It would be rude. But to your own father, you can do that. You can beg. Beg for money. You can beg for things you want. You could inconvenience them. And what would be rude to anyone else often is natural when you're talking about mommy or daddy. And so, what is Jesus saying? When he says, our Father, he's already reminding us of our adoption, right? Every Christian, every child of God is justified, meaning we are declared righteous in Christ, but we are also adopted, meaning because of Christ's work on the cross. Not only am I forgiven, not only am I saved, not only do I have eternal life, but I am now a child of God. Of God. So that means as a child of God, I can pour out my heart to God. 
that I can go to God with anything and everything. And so there's a reverence. He is our heavenly father. He has authority. And yet at the same time, there is a warmth that only comes from a heavenly father. He is not some abstract, powerful being in the sky, right? He's not just an almighty God who has no personal relationship with his people. Jesus is reminding us from the beginning of this prayer When you pray to God, yes, you worship him. Yes, you revere him. Yes, he is your heavenly father. And yet also, he is your dearest father. He is your Abba father. He is someone you can bring every need before, and he will listen to you with love. But how? How can a sinner like me be able to call God Almighty my father our Father in heaven. And again, it goes back to the cross. It goes back to Christ. It is because Christ did the unthinkable. It is because of what he did for his people on the cross. You know, if you look at the New Testament, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus, when he talks to his Father, obviously, he says Father. He's always calling him Father, Father. He prays Father. He says Father. But then when he goes to the cross, What does Jesus do? As he's on the cross, as he's suffering hell itself upon the cross, he quotes David in Psalm 22, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a very powerful moment because we realize at that moment, Jesus didn't say Father. He always said Father, but at that moment, because he is being forsaken, because he is taking upon the penalty of our sins, the penalty of hell upon himself. He actually doesn't say, Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see that Jesus was forsaken so that why? We could be forgiven, that he became an outsider there at the cross so that we sinners like us could become insiders, that we could be forgiven, that we could be redeemed, that we could be adopted. Now we can call our Heavenly Father, Father. But we who were sinners are not only forgiven, we are now in the family of God. We are his children. And we can say, Father. And we can call Jesus, not just our Savior, but our elder brother, because we are adopted. We are joint heirs with Christ, with all of the blessings that come With that, we have now all the benefits of being children of God. Now, that's an amazing thing. And so I want us to think about it, that who are we praying to? We're not praying just to some powerful being in the sky. We are praying to our heavenly Father who loves his children so much that he would even send his only begotten son to take our place upon the cross so that we could be part of his family could be adopted as his sons and his daughters. And so we are praying to our Heavenly Father. But secondly, we're praying Godward prayers. Right? And if you look at these petitions that we have, the first half is all about God, and then the second half is really praying for our needs. But what Jesus shows us is that he wants us to start by thinking about God. See, most of us, when we pray, we, we start with our needs. We say, God, I need this. God, I need that. And if we're really honest, our prayer lives tend to pick up 
when we're desperate, right? Our prayer lives tend to get ramped up when we have a need, when we have a struggle, when we're scared, when we're anxious. What happens? Our prayer lives go from like very, very low sometimes to very, very high. It's kind of similar to, you know, I know people that write journals or diaries and they tell me that when they look at their journals or their diaries, they just sound like really depressed people. Because they say when life is good, I don't write. But they say when their life is hard, I start writing a lot. And so they say if someone just looked at my journal, they tell me they would think that my life is only full of problems. But sometimes our prayer lives are like that. When life seems okay, we kind of forget about God. But then when life gets hard, we, we go to God. And so a lot of our prayers are, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. And there's a place for that. Of course, there are times where it, life is so hard, that's how we start. And that's fine. Obviously, he is my heavenly father. He hears all of my prayers. But what is Jesus teaching us in this prayer that our priority, before we talk about our needs, should always be upon God. Our prayer lives should be centered upon God. And so we look at these prayers, and what does Jesus say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, hallowed be your name. Now, the Greek word for hallowed here usually will be translated sanctified. It's talking about holy, right? Set apart. And so when we say hallowed be your name or holy is your name, we're not saying that God's name should become holy. It already is holy. God is set apart. He is holy. So what are we praying? That his name, that his person should be revered. We're praying that God's name, which embodies his essence, that his character, that his name should be treated as holy. And this means that we honor God's name in public, that we honor it in private, that we pray, and we're praying that the world would honor him too. And we're praying that God will be worshipped. Really, this is worship. We say, God, holy is your name. You're my heavenly Father, right, you, who loves me. And there's that closeness, but also I am reminded that you are holy and you are worthy of our praise. And so really in this prayer, what are we starting with? We're starting with adoration. As we think about how holy, how good, how loving, all the things that we sang about even this afternoon during times of praise, that our God is able, right, how he is good. And so... We praise him. We're saying, hallowed be your name. And that's really a reminder. My life should be about worshiping God. My life should not always focus on my needs and what I need, what I want. That it should be thinking about my heavenly father who loves me so much. And as I think about that, I respond with worship. Because he is holy. He is ultimate. He is supreme. But then, what did Jesus say? He goes from, hallowed be your name. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, your kingdom come just means that Christ is king and that we want his rule to become more and more evident every day. <clears throat> so what are we saying? We're saying, you are my heavenly father. You love me as a child, as a father loves a child. And I'm moved by that. And so I praise you. Hallowed be your name. I worship you. I want my prayer to glorify your name. I want my life to glorify your name. I want my family, I want my church to recognize how amazing, set apart, and holy you are. And I want your kingdom come. Father, I know that Christ is king. I want your rule to grow. There's an evangelistic, 
evangelistic sense in that prayer, right? We want the church to grow. We want the church to grow in size and influence. We want Christ's name to be preached. We want Christians to grow in maturity. And we want people to obey Christ in every sphere of life. But also, when they say your kingdom come, I'm thinking about the growth of the church, the growth in evangelism, for his name to be preached, for people to come to Christ. But I'm also thinking about Christ's return, your kingdom come, literally thinking about how one day Christ will come back in glory and triumph at his second coming. We're thinking about how amazing that day will be, your kingdom come. And yet, your kingdom come also means I want you to reign in my life. But your kingdom come, I'm thinking about the growth of the church. I'm thinking about Christ's return. But I'm also saying, Father, I want you to rule my heart. I want you to rule my life. But you're my heavenly Father. I worship you. And I want to seek first your kingdom, right, your righteousness. And I want your kingdom, your reign to show up in my life, in my church. We want you to be supreme. And so we see this flow here. Hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. Your kingdom come, but also your will be done. That's a very powerful line, your will be done. When I think about that line, your will be done, I think of Jesus. I think of him in Gethsemane, as he is praying to his father right before he goes to the cross. And what does Jesus say? He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He says, remove this cup from me. So he's saying, if it's possible, remove this cup. What does that mean? The cup of wrath. He's talking about the cross. He knows how difficult the cross will be. Some people think, oh, he's Jesus. The cross was whatever. He's God. No. Jesus knew how so difficult the cross would be as he takes upon the penalty of all of our sins, as he takes up hell itself. But then he says, very powerful words, yet not what I will, but what you will. He says, pretty much, your will be done. Jesus is saying, your will be done. And when I pray, your will be done, that is, again, a powerful prayer. Because when I think about God's will, there's obviously his decrees, right, his plan, but also your will, there's the prescriptive sense, his will for me. How does he want me to live my life? And so when I say your will be done, I am saying, God, I want your plan, your decrees to be carried out. I want you to do you in this world. But also, when I say your will be done, I'm saying, God, it's not about me, it's about you. It's not about what I want, it is about what you want. Someone once asked me, what is idolatry? Right? I love my family. Right? I love my job. I love my church. I love my children. I love the, all these different things. How do I know when the thing, this thing that I love and I like has become an idol? And one of the ways we know is can I say your will be done? So What I mean by that is, let's say I love something. Can I say... God, if you were to remove this thing that I love in my life, it would hurt, it would be difficult, but can I actually say, however, your will be done? Right? When Jesus talks to the rich young ruler, he says, you want to follow me? 
to sell all your, give all your possessions away, give it to the poor, and follow me. He's saying, can you say your will be done, Jesus, this money, this possession that I love, can you set it aside and then follow me? Can you say your will be done? And pretty much the rich young ruler says, no. He walks away. But then we see Zacchaeus, another rich man, a tax collector who was a sinner, who was robbing his own people, who was dishonest, and when his life gets transformed by Christ, what does he do? This money that he loved, he says, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give it back four times, 400%. So pretty much he's saying, I'm willing to go broke. Why? Because your will be done. I will rather follow you. And so when I say your will be done, I'm saying, Father, I trust you. You are my heavenly Father who loves me. I want your kingdom come, but also I want to bring everything in my life before you. And I want to say, Father, whatever you want me to do, whatever you call me to do, your will be done. That's impossible. It is an impossible thing to do unless... I know how much my Heavenly Father truly loves me. And unless I'm looking at my Savior, who said, you will be done, as he went to the cross. And as that love moves me, as I, my faith grows in that love, in that Savior, in my Heavenly Father, I'm able to say, you will be done. So we have praying to our Heavenly Father with confidence. We're praying for God's will, his honor, we're praying for his kingdom. But then lastly, now the Lord's Prayer moves towards our needs. We're praying for our needs. And, you know, there's really three things he highlights here in the needs where Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Praying for our needs. And the first thing he says here is, give us this day our daily bread. You know, when you read that, you're actually reminded of the Old Testament. You're reminded of the book of Exodus, reminded of the Israelites as they were enslaved in Egypt, they were freed, but they crossed the Red Sea, and they are now in, really, the wilderness, the desert, and God provides for them. How? He gives them manna every day, right? This snowflake-looking thing that's very sweet, that tastes amazing, Obviously, none of us have ever had it, but when you read it in you know, the Old Testament, it sounds amazing, but what, what do we learn in the manna? Every day, God put manna on the ground, right, outside of the Sabbath, and the people were to eat it and take enough for the day, but if you kept anything more than one day's worth, what would happen? The rest would rot overnight. And so what pretty much would happen is every day you went out, you got your daily bread, and then you left the rest. You didn't try to store up for tomorrow because you knew it was just a rot. And what was God teaching his people? He was saying, you have to depend on me. Don't try to do it all yourself, thinking if I just take enough, I can figure it out for the week, for the month. He was saying, take just enough for today because you need my grace every day. Not just today, you need my grace every single day because everything that is given to you is by 
my grace. Right? There's a certain desperation that we are to have as the people of God because we should remember every day that is by God's grace. Sometimes we fool ourselves and we think, all this that I have, it's because I worked so hard. Right? It's because I did it. I earned it. I achieved it. Or maybe I got a little bit of help from my, my parents or from my spouse or maybe my kids helped me out or my friends. But we think somehow I did it or my connections did it or my family did it. And there's a me attitude about everything. But God is reminding us. He says, give us this day our daily bread that everything you have ultimately is from God. And we are fully dependent upon our Heavenly Father. And we need his grace every single day. Not weekly bread, not monthly bread. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Just like I provided for my people in the wilderness, by giving the manna, I will provide for your needs every single day. So there is nothing unholy about going to my heavenly Father and praying for my daily bread, praying for my needs. Some people think it's weird. They don't want to pray for their needs. Oh, I feel like my prayer should all be about, about God and about other people. But Jesus instructs us, no, you need his grace. You need his physical bread to provide for your needs, but also you need his spiritual bread to nourish you spiritually as well. But you need all of that, and only your heavenly Father can truly provide, so bring it before him. Don't think you're above it or below it. It is what you need. You need to trust him. Although I will highlight something here. When we pray for our daily bread, it's talking about needs, right? Talking about things that we need in our life, not necessarily our greed. So I think sometimes we have this idea that if I pray for something hard enough, right, God should provide these things. And I think sometimes we have to, again, remember, he's promising to answer our prayers for the needs that we have and sometimes the things that we think we need, God may not think that we need those things, right? And so I think there's a, there's a certain trust in my prayer that God knows what I need and he will answer it the way he knows is best for me. I think that's a great line from um, John Calvin, actually, who you know, obviously is you know, considered the father of Calvinism, has called Calvinist, but... He says, God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. Right? I love that line. Right? He says, God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but we, as we would pray them if we were wiser. And kind of similar in that sense, uh, more recent example, Tim Keller says this. He says, your father gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. That's how prayer works. Your Father gives you always what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. And what is the point that we're making here? God promises to give us his daily bread. He promises to provide for our needs. Sometimes those needs are not what we think of as our needs, but we trust in our dependence of him that what we truly need he will always provide. And so we pray for our daily bread, but also, right, if you look at the passage, what do we also pray for? We say, forgive us our debts 
as we have forgiven our debtors. And if you look at verse 14 and 15, Jesus kind of expounds that. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I want to actually think about this for a second. It is often misunderstood. So sometimes people think this. God will only forgive me if I first forgive other people. Because right, honestly, it kind of sounds like that when you read it, and they go, whoa, that's scary. God will only forgive me if I forgive other people. Now, Jesus is not teaching that because that would be antithetical to the idea of grace, right? How can it be that God would only forgive me after I forgive other people? That is not what he is saying. However, what he is saying is this. If I know that I am truly forgiven, if I have experienced that forgiveness, and I know how big my sins are, right? If I know how tremendously huge my sins against my heavenly Father are, and I know that he had to send his own son, and Christ had to die for me, and that mercy, that grace, that forgiveness, if I understand how amazingly big that is, and I've experienced that, then I will forgive my debtors. I will forgive those who trespass against us. So he's saying the forgiven will forgive. If you understand grace, if you understand mercy, then obviously you will extend that mercy and that grace to others. And that is the point. See, sometimes we say we're not going to forgive certain people because their sins are too big. How could I forgive this person? How could I possibly think about it? They don't deserve it because what they have done is so awful. I could never forgive them. And those words are anti-grace. It's anti-mercy because no matter what somebody has done to me, it is going to be nothing compared to what I have done against my Heavenly Father. And yet, he chooses to forgive his people even at the cost of his own begotten son's life. So that means that as a child of God who has received forgiveness, I need to be willing, desiring, and be able to forgive someone else. Now, I'm not saying that means somebody wrongs us and that moment I say, oh, I forgive you as Christ has forgiven me. I think we all understand that the greater the hurt, the greater the pain, the greater the betrayal, forgiveness can be amazingly, extremely difficult. It may take years. It may take a long time. But to have the heart, the attitude to say, that is where I want to get to because of what Christ has done. And it may take time. It may take a lot of effort. It may take a lot of prayer. However, that is the goal. A Christian should never say, I could never forgive them and just walk away from that. I think our desire should be, God, how can you slowly change my heart as I meditate upon your mercy and forgiveness so that I can forgive? And the famous theologian, John Stott, has this line about forgiveness. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. And what is he saying? He's saying 
my sin against my Heavenly Father is so huge when I understand what that forgiveness means, what Christ had to do, what he had to do to pay for those sins, that mercy starts working in my heart. And slowly, my, I have a desire to forgive and an empowerment, an ability even to forgive. And then this last petition is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you think about it, right, it's saying the man and the woman who was free from guilt, right, from forgiveness, now wants relief from the tyranny of sin. So it's connected to the previous petition. And the idea here is this. Lord, preserve me from temptation that will bring me under its sway and will cause me to fail. See, lead me not into temptation does not mean this. It does not mean, Father, I want no temptations in my life. Right? Some people think that's what it's supposed to mean, right? Father, take away every temptation before me because I don't want it. And if you think about it, that's not even a good prayer in that sense because we need temptation sometimes because how do I grow? If I know who my heavenly Father is, and if I know that in Christ I have victory over sin, then temptation can often be an opportunity to grow. So for example, if I pray to God, Father, I want to grow in love. I want to grow in patience. What will probably happen? God will probably put somebody in my life that tests my patience. Right? God will probably put somebody in my life that is very unlovable. But think about this for a second. If every person around me is very lovable, and if every person around me doesn't test my patience, then how do I grow in love? How do I grow and patience. I can't. I won't. So what does God do, right? Sometimes he will allow for there to be people in my life that are truly unlovable, that truly test our patience. But when we are tempted to get angry, when we are tempted to, you know, do all these other negative things or say negative things or think negative things, it is an opportunity for me to grow, to love those who are difficult to love as Christ has loved me, to be patient, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. To be able to be patient as Christ is patient with me. And again, it is an opportunity to grow. And so temptation in and of itself does not have to be a bad thing. It could be an opportunity for me to grow in Christ. However, we don't want those temptations, right, to be something that we cannot withstand. We don't want temptations in my life that I'm too weak to be able to handle, obviously. Hence, the prayer is this. Preserve me from temptation that will bring me under its way and will cause me to fail. Really, what we're saying is, as one commentator puts it, we cannot help being exposed to temptation. and We're not to pray that we'll be spared being tempted at all. Whether we're to pray that we will be spared those temptations from Satan that we cannot withstand, right? So the pr proper prayer regarding temptation is not that we be delivered from temptation, all temptation, but facing and overcoming it is necessary for the health of our souls, but proper prayer does ask God to deliver us from overpowering temptations, recognizing that we're weak and liable to fold under severe testing. And really, what are we praying? We're saying, Father, 
I know how weak I am. I know how sinful I am. Even though I am redeemed, I know how still weak and sinful and needy I am. So when I am tempted, I know it's an opportunity for me to grow, but Father, I am praying to you. Let me not be tempted beyond what I can handle. And we pray these prayers knowing how much our Heavenly Father loves us. And what that means is this. When I pray for my daily bread, I pray for my needs knowing He will provide. I pray for forgiveness, again, knowing that He does forgive me, that Christ died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. And I say, deliver me from evil, leave me out of temptation, knowing fully that my Heavenly Father will never allow me to be tempted beyond what I can withstand. Why? Because He loves me. You know, just like as a parent, right, when I'm with my children, of course, you want to make sure they're taken care of. You want to make sure that no bad thing happens to them, and you want to make sure you love them as best as possible. And yet, as a human father, I'm very sinful, I'm very weak, right? I'm very fallible, and so we don't do that perfectly. But when I'm praying to my heavenly father, I realize something. He is perfect, and his love for me is perfect. His power is perfect. He's almighty. He's working for my good. And so if we are his people, we go to our Heavenly Father in our prayers, saying, our Father, my dearest Father who loves me so much, and we truly depend on him, knowing that he will love us perfectly. So my prayer this afternoon is that as a church, this would be the attitude that we have as we go to our Heavenly Father daily in our prayers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your amazing love and faithfulness. We pray, Abba, Father, because you are our Father who loves his people so much so much so that you would even send your only begotten son to love, to sacrifice himself for us, your people. And we pray that as we know this love more and more, that we will continue to grow in your grace and your love, that we will be your people that love you, that worship you, that are truly dependent upon you, and that truly shine your light in this world. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.